Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you a happy person? That's good. Now, that's a big question. So let me ask it again. Are you a happy person? Because sometimes we're quick to say, yeah, I am a happy person. Of course I am. It's kind of like when you're passing somebody in the hallway and they say, oh, hey, how are you doing? And very quickly you say, oh, I'm fine. Even though you're not sure if you really are fine, you just give that response very quickly. And I don't just mean right now, are you happy, right? It's after Christmas and you just had some awesome worship. You might be doing really good. I mean, overall in your life, are you happy? And what would your family and friends say to the response you gave, am I a happy person? Well, if you're unsure on how to answer that question, if you weren't one of the screamers out here, I have some good news for you. As I was doing some studying, I came across uh, a website that did a quiz. And it was a quiz to find out just exactly how happy you are. So, of course, I had to take this quiz. And I received a score of 88%. It basically said that 88% of the time, I am a happy and content person. And the quiz said that this was a great score and that it is, quote, unlikely that I know anybody who is happier than myself. So I hate to tell anybody in here that you'll never be as happy as I am tonight. No, no. Of course, that was just a, a silly, stupid quiz. And in fact, I think that the quiz was a little bit generous in the score that it gave. I think being happy 88% of the time, it can be quite high. And as I thought about the way things can be and the way people can be and the way life can be, it seems as if, in fact, we're really only happy 50% of the time. Let me ask you another question. What could happen to you today that could drastically change your contentment level? Money, status, relationships, possessions, Maybe you're one of those people who said, you know, if I could win the lottery, well, then that would just be everything that I needed. Well, I did a little research, and it seems that that's not always true. I read a story on abcnews.com entitled, The Curse of the Lottery Winners. It was by psychologist Steve Danish who said he had studied the effects of instant wealth on lottery winners. And he said that the dream you have about winning the lottery is actually better than winning the lottery itself. Some of you are probably like, it's okay, Steve, I'll still try myself, right? I want to know firsthand if that's the truth. But the reason he gives is for the evidence of families being torn apart by winning the lottery. He gives a couple examples. Kenneth and Connie Parker, who had a great marriage for 16 years. Just months after winning the lottery, they were divorced. Or Jeffrey Damper, who won $20 million and was soon kidnapped and murdered by his own sister-in-law. There's story after story of people who thought that this money was the ticket to their happiness. Jack Whitetaker, the largest individual winner, soon realized that after the death of his granddaughter, that money could not fill that void from his lost family member. Now, I don't think the lottery is cursed in case any of you got a Powerball ticket in your pocket and it's like burning a hole in your pocket right now. I, I don't think that that's the case. The problem is this. The problem is thinking that anything 
money or any sort of material object in this world can be, can bring true contentment or true happiness. We all have this idea that if we just had this or if we just had that, well then we would just be happy as a clam. You guys have probably heard all that statement before, happy as a clam. And it's actually quite true. And if you haven't, if you don't know, the actual whole phrase is this, happy as a clam in high tide. And as I looked into this saying, it's because when a clam is in high tide, it's very content. It has plenty of food, water, oxygen, and safety. It's very dangerous for a person to dive into high tide to search for clams. So they'd have to wait for low tide. But once the clam is in low tide, it now becomes exposed, it says. It's now in danger. It feels vulnerable. It feels disconnected and discontented, much like humans. When things are good and the tide is high, so to speak, we're content and life is good. But when the tide is low and things begin to get rough, we begin to question. We begin to think, if only things were like that. If only things were like that. Or we say, you know, if I had that thing, then I would be happy. And that's why I've named this message tonight, Happier Than a Clam. Because you see, clams, much like humans, as silly as is, are only happy about half of the time. The time when things are good. But we're going to see in our study tonight that it isn't our circumstances that brings us true contentment. It's a proper perception of God. And we're going to see that we can be content all the time. And I don't mean like this, you know, fake cheesy smile. Hi, how you doing? Yeah. Oh, I'm good. Of course I'm good. I'm a Christian. We're always good, right? I don't mean that kind of fake contentedness. But we're going to see five things tonight. We're going to see that contentment is confidence in God. That contentment is learned. That contentment is a sign of maturity. That contentment is flexible. And lastly, that contentment is possible in Christ. Now, before we read our entire text that we're going to be in tonight, I just want to make one remark. The type of contentment that I am not talking about is contentment in our relationship with God. I think that being discontented in our relationship with God is a good thing. Contentment in our spiritual life can turn into laziness and spiritual apathy. So we should always be wanting to strive to know God more, to grow in Him, And to serve his kingdom. The type of contentment that I'm talking about, that we're going to talk about, we're going to read about here, is to be content in our lives. Content with the things that we have in our lives and content with the things that we don't have in our lives. That we can be content knowing that we may possess nothing but a relationship with the Lord. And that our contentment or our discontentment is not based off an abundance or a lack of possessions, but a relationship with the one true living, breathing God. So let's read our entire text, Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care has flourished for me again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So the first thing I want to look at tonight is contentment is confidence in God. 
Now, this idea of contentment was around way before Christianity. And it's also very widespread in Rome where Paul is writing this letter from jail. The Stoics or Stoicism, a school of Hellenistic philosophy, was widely diffused in Rome. And the highest state that could be achieved by a Stoic was to eliminate all desire. They said, if you want to make a man happy, do not add to his possessions, but take away from his desires. Now, I think that's true in some respect. But the Stoics believed that the only way to contentment was to abolish all desire until they reached the stage where nothing or no one was essential to life. So they would take something like an object and break it and be done with it and say, I don't need it. And then maybe move on to like a pet. And then finally, all the way up into a loved one, when they would die, they would say, we're pretty much not even sad about this. We don't need this. They wanted to eliminate every feeling of the human heart. Socrates was once asked, who is the wealthiest person? And his reply was, he who is content with the least. Now, I like some of that stuff. I really do. But I think that they were looking to be apathetic. And Paul isn't talking about apathy here. He doesn't want us to disengage from the world. He doesn't want us to disengage from our hearts or from our needs, but rather to look to God for all of our needs, provisions, and to have confidence that whatever we have, if anything, is enough at that moment, and God is in control. Look at verse 10 once again. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care has flourished for me again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Notice he says he rejoiced in the Lord that the church at Philippi's care had now flourished for him again. Now scholars believe that the church may have not known where Paul was at this time and or they didn't have the means necessary themselves to help Paul out. But Paul says, I didn't, he doesn't say, I thank you. He says, I thank God. He's so glad that they've begun to care for his needs again, but he gives all the glory to God. Paul had the right attitude that everything he had or didn't have was because of God. Paul knew that God wasn't limited. God is not strapped for cash. God's house isn't in foreclosure. That God has the power to give or take away anything in his life. Now, Paul knew that. But the question is, do we know this? You see, many times when we lack something in our life, we begin to question God and we say, well, maybe God doesn't have the power to give me that that thing that I need. Oh, he does. He could give you a million of those things that you desire. He has just chosen to obviously withhold it from you. Maybe A, because it's not the right time or B, because in fact, you don't need it. We need to have confidence that whatever we possess in our lives is all we need at that moment. And if we should need something else, then God will bring it to be. Oswald Sanders in his amazing book, Spiritual Maturity, says that everything is permitted by God, designed by God. He doesn't cease supervision, no, not even for a single moment. You see, Paul is confident in God's ability. He isn't worried that like, oh no, you know, God overlooked something or, oh man, God forgot to feed Paul and he died. Like you forget to feed your fish sometimes, right? He wasn't like, oh no, God's taken a nap and maybe he forgot that I need something down here. Your God is not limited. Your God is not weak. Your God knows you better than you know yourself and you must have confidence that he will provide. You must have faith that God is able to give you what you need. Now, maybe you're thinking, you know what? 
Easier said than done, Paul. Well, I believe that's why God chose Paul to write this part of Scripture. Because if anybody was ever at a point of wondering if God was going to supply for his needs, it would be Paul. If people looked at the life of Paul before Christ, they would have said Paul was better off without Jesus. I mean, think about it. Paul was a notable Pharisee. I'm sure he was very wealthy. He had status. He had popularity. He had power. Those things are three huge things in our world. And then after he meets Jesus, he goes blind for a bit. He's poor for the rest of his life. He's in and out of prison, shipwrecked, almost stoned to death. And he has a quote-unquote thorn in his side that God won't take away. People would be like, Paul, are you sure that your God is in control? But look at Paul. God provided for him every time. The contentment Paul had in God was far more important than possessing all of those material pleasures that he had before Jesus. And that's why Paul pens in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul says, my need... And even my pain at times is nothing compared to the glory of heaven in the future. He knew God knows what I need and what I don't need. Paul relied on God and not himself. And through that, he learned to be more content each time. Which brings us to our second point of the night. Contentment is learned. Look at verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am, to be content. Now we have many students in here, but I'm sure all of you guys are familiar with learning something new. It takes practice. It isn't as if one day you start to do something and you've already mastered it. Do we have any golfers in here? Okay, a couple of you guys. All right, if, if, I, I like to play golf every now and then. And if, you, if there's any golfers in here, then you know that golf is one sport that cannot be mastered. You might have the shot of your life and you're like, Man, I got to do this more often. And then the next shot, you've missed the ball, right? That's just the way it is in golf. That's just how it is. But we know that the more you do something, the better you do become at it. And this is true about contentment. And you may be thinking, that sounds kind of weird that to practice contentment, but it does help. And how we practice contentment is by learning to live within our means. When we remind ourselves that God is in control, and that all I have right now is all I need, and we remind ourselves that all of these other things and must-haves in our lives could in fact just be ways we're trying to satisfy the flesh. We begin to slowly but surely become more content. You know, there's a reason why Jesus came as the humble, suffering servant. It always puts me in check when I remember what Jesus said, that the birds have nests, that the foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. How humbling. The King of King and the Lord of Lords was homeless most of his life. When we put things into perspective that Jesus, while he was here on earth, lived by God's provision as well, then we realize we too have the ability. And if we learn contentedness, then it's going to be have a certain disconnect from the ways of this world. Because contentedness is also sought after in our world, but they do it a much different way. They believe that contentedness comes from more things and more experiences. 
And as much as we have to learn the proper road of contentment, we also need to unlearn all the damage that has been done in the past. Look at the TV. I don't know if you know this, but last year, Honda spent $6.2 million on one 90-second commercial trying to convince you that you need a Honda, right? And that's all a commercial is. They're trying to get you to say that that is what's missing from my life. Now that thing would fill the gap. And so we need to be where? Be weary over the media because guess what? Satan is very good at his job of making us feel discontented. I mean, you can open up a magazine and flip through it and not read much. And sure, at the end of it, you want a couple of things for sure. And so two great ways that we can learn to be content is to number one, pray that God would rid us of our vain desires and that he would give us a proper perspective on life, that God would open our eyes to the world around us and to what's truly important. You saw Matt and Nate from Renovate. That rhymes. Sounds pretty cool. And they do a lot of stuff with this organization called Love 146. And if you've never heard of it, it's an amazing organization that's trying to eradicate human slave trafficking in the 21st century. If you don't know this, I was looking at it, that there's 27, excuse me, 27 million people enslaved this day in our time. And when you think about that, it's sure hard to think, yeah, you know, I wish I had a better house. I wish I had these better things. When you have a perspective of, There's 27 million people who are enslaved against their own will from babies to old people. It sure gives you a proper perspective. The second thing after praying that God would rid you of your vain desires is to be in the word. It's to look at people like Jesus and Paul and see how they were content with little to nothing. And to look at people like Solomon, people who had it all, yet failed. And as we live, we need to remember some of the passages in the Bible, like Luke 3.14, when John the Baptist tells the people to be content with their wages. Or 1 Timothy 6.6, when Paul says, with food and clothing, we should be content. Or Hebrews 13.5, when it says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. These things take time to learn. But we must desire to change. No one, when they come to Jesus, automatically sheds their selfish desires. But it's possible over time. And when we do it, it's a sign of our maturity. Which brings us to our third topic of the night. Contentment is a sign of maturity. Now, I'm a mid-school pastor, so you can imagine that the topic of maturity comes up quite often in my ministry. There's a huge variety among the students But no matter how young or old you are today, none of us have yet to arrive spiritually. Here is Paul towards the end of his ministry. And now he's saying he has learned to be content. You know, it may shock you, but Paul was not automatically a super Christian. The Lord taught and sanctified Paul too. We're in the process of sanctification and we will be until the day of the Lord and when we are no longer here. I found it to be true that the fastest way to grow in maturity is to do the hard stuff. That there's no way to cheat. It's by doing the hard things that will bring us the most maturity in our Christian life. 
Now, I'm a cyclist, and I like to follow professional cycling. And I'm sure you guys have all heard the name Lance Armstrong before, of course. Seven-time winner of the Tour de France. Now, there's been some speculation from so many people who think, how is it possible to win the Tour de France seven times without being on some sort of sports-enhancing drugs, some sort of uh, steroids or something like that? And so I don't know if you've ever seen the Nike commercial with Lance Armstrong, but it starts off with Lance Armstrong sitting behind a desk, and the paparazzi is there, and the pictures and the flashbulbs are going off, and Lance's st- uh, voice comes over the commercial, and he says, Everybody wants to know what I'm on. A couple more flashbulbs. And he says, everybody wants to know what I'm on. And he says, you want to know what I'm on? I'm on my bike six hours a day. That's what I'm on. And I love that motto. I love that. And I know that it's not by any might of ours that we can achieve spiritual maturity. But I do believe that there is a time to grow up And that contentment in our lives is a sign that we are advancing. We are growing up. I mean, think of a little baby. It cries and it cries and it cries. And when it it cries because it feels like it lacks something. I need milk. I need sleep. Mommy, I need a diaper change. Right? My, my, My kid will say mommy before I need a diaper change too. No, I'm just kidding. My wife's right there. She's giving me a bad look. But complaining about your situation is for spiritual babies. So not cool if you had a 24-year-old son who's still crying, Mommy, change my diapers. So how you react to your situation shows your level of spiritual maturity. If you're the last one in the shower and you get like a lukewarm shower and that just wrecks your whole day, you've got a problem. If you didn't get your morning Starbucks and that just sets you over the edge and you're, not, you're just not going to be good to anybody today, you have a problem. If you didn't get everything on that Christmas list this year and you're just like trying to figure out how to get it, you have a problem because we need to beware. We don't want to slip back into that stage where Peter talks about that we're not even eating solid spiritual food. We're still rocking the milk and a pacifier. Now, I understand that it doesn't say rocking the milk in a pacifier, but you get my point. We should want to grow up. We should want to be more like Jesus. And if our goal and God's goal is to be more like Jesus, then ask yourself a question. When was the last time you saw Jesus complaining? Maybe you're thinking about that time in Luke when Jesus uh, gets really mad and yells at Peter because he gave him wheat bread instead of white bread. Oh, wait, that never happened. Or maybe you're thinking, what about Paul? Maybe, maybe you're thinking about that time when Paul said, hey, you know what? If you want to be a legit Christian, it's got to be Ray-Bans and Ray-Bans only. Oh, wait, that's not in the scriptures either. Therefore, we need to be careful about what we claim we must have or else we complain about it and we cannot be happy. You all know the story of the children of Israel. They're in bondage. They're in slavery. They have hard masters in Egypt and they cry out and they ask the Lord God to help them and help them. And God raises up Moses and Moses goes in there and they takes the children of Israel out of Egypt and they see the miracle of the Red Sea and they see God on the mountain. They see the smoke and the lightning and all the amazing effects and God feeds them. And then they start, what what is one of the things they say? just shortly after they're saved from Israel, or excuse me, from Egypt, they say, oh, 
If only we were still in Egypt. You were in slavery to Egypt and now you want to go back to Egypt? They weren't very content. And so dependency on anything but God takes us from the road of spiritual maturity back into the high chair of Christian immaturity. So many times we think, God, what is your will for my life? We've all said that. God, what is your will for my life? Well, there's a couple times in the Bible when God answers that question. And one of them, he says, is my will for your life is your sanctification. That you be set apart, so to speak. That you be mature. That you learn to be content with what I have given you and you trust that I will provide. That in high tide or in low tide, you stay faithful and it will mature you. Which brings us to our fourth point of the night called contentment is flexible. We all know that there's mountaintops and valleys in the Christian life. And I'm sure like me, you've had some of the best experiences and some of the worst experiences being a Christian. And I think Paul would say the same. Let's look at verse 12. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. As we spoke about earlier, Paul, if not more than any of us, understands the ups and downs of life. I want you to think for a moment of one of the best times in your life. One of the best times. Now I want you to think about one of the worst times of your life. And ask yourself, what is the difference? What changed? What was it based off of? Was it based off of something that was changing like emotions or circumstance? You see, I'm not saying, like I said before, that we should put on fake smiles But from what I can see from Paul here is that in the best of circumstances and in the worst, that it should not change our contentment level. The theme of Philippians, if you don't know, and the key verse is Philippians 4.4, where it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It doesn't say rejoice in the Lord when everything's going well. It says rejoice in the Lord, period. And then just a couple of verses later, we have here Paul saying, I've abound, meaning when I've had it all. In fact, the word that he's using here means overflowing, abundance, twice needed. Or he says, when I've been abased, the word used here means to be humbled. It means to be assigned to a lower rank, or we could put it in our terms. When I've hit rock bottom, when I've bounced checks, Paul says, although my economic status and my social status has changed, my joy and my contentment didn't. And that's why we ought not to base our happiness on things that have the possibility of changing. I'm not saying that if God has blessed you with money that you should give it all away. The point is this, contentment is flexible. It isn't based off of a certain number in your bank account or that car that you drive. It isn't based off of your social life quality. If one thing in your life changes and you're completely unhappy, then I think Paul would ask you, what is it that you base your contentment off of? Because what I'm getting here from Paul is that he isn't worried about the changeable things that can be corrupted but he's worried about the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I know how it is. 
We have to day by day evaluate our life's focus before, because before you even know it, we begin to idolize something. We begin to put expectations, huge expectations on mere men and objects. And I'm not saying that we can't be sad at times and we can't grieve. I'm saying that if one thing in your life changes and you go bankrupt, then may God take that thing from you because it has become an idol in your life. Many times we wonder, why God? Why do you take things and people from our lives? Well, first off, he's God. He can do what he wants. He's not obligated to give us an explanation. And most of the time he does give us an explanation because he loves us so much. But secondly, maybe you can't be trusted with that thing that you're desiring. Maybe he's protecting you from a potential pitfall. Isn't that why the book of Job is so inspiring? Here's Job. Boils all over him. He's got a piece of a pot, right? A pot shard. Scraping himself because he's itchy and in pain. And here he is scraping himself. But guess what he says? I know my Redeemer lives. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We just sang it. He knew this wasn't it. He knew it wasn't Job suffers and dies. End of story. He loved his family. He loved his health, but it wasn't his source of joy. Now that's flexibility. Some of us had, some of us have had little financial struggles in our life. Praise the Lord. Honor the Lord in that. Some of us struggle every single day to get by and some of us are right in the middle. But no matter where we end up, should it change overnight, don't lose all joy because of a few hardships. Or suddenly if you gain it all overnight and you receive more, you shouldn't become even more joyful. Because if your contentment is flexible, that's a good thing because it shows that you put your contentment in God because he's the only person who is unchanging in a changing world. Which brings us to our last point. Contentment is possible in Christ. You guys, uh, any Denver Bronco fans in here? Anybody? Okay, a couple of woohoos. I'm from Denver, so I'm not really a big football fan, but I, of course I follow the home team because that's just what you do. And we recently acquired Tim Tebow, second string quarterback. All right, yeah, give it up for Timmy. Great, great Christian, awesome guy. And I came across a an issue of the magazine 5280. It's a local Denver magazine that I get sent to me because I like to keep up on things that are going back home. And on the cover of the magazine was a picture of Tim Tebow's face. And he had the little black marks like football players do to reflect the light. And on the cover of the magazine, it said Philippians, Philippians 4.13. Let's read what that is. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, God bless Tim Tebow, and I'm glad that he finds strength from Jesus to win football games. I believe that that's possible. But what Paul is talking about here is so much harder than winning a football game. He's saying the only reason that I can survive, the only reason that I can go hungry, the only reason that I could be made low is because of Christ who empowers me during that. I don't know about you guys, but life can obviously be exhausting at times. You know that moment when you first awake and you're trying to think about any possible way for you to stay in bed for just a couple minutes longer? You're like, maybe I'll rearrange this and get a couple more minutes here. And you know, you're just trying to do anything you can to stay there for a little bit. 
we alone in this corrupt body could never, ever suppress all of our sinful desires or finish the work of God. If that's going to happen, we're going to need supernatural empowerment. And that comes from relying on Christ. He is the only way that we can be happy. He is the only source of long-lasting contentment. Because if you're looking for contentment in anything else but God, it will leave you unsatisfied. Always wanting more because those things cannot satisfy. And so that part of you that cannot be satisfied, you will continuously try to fill with more stuff and more experiences. It wasn't as if Paul is saying here that he can go without food or water. He isn't suggesting that. But he understands that if he has Jesus and that all he has is Jesus, well, then he has everything. Because as the Bible said, in all in Jesus are all the riches and mercies of God. Maybe some of you in here tonight have no contentment. You're still searching. You're a Christian even, maybe, but you're, you're still looking for something else a little bit. And I'll tell you from personal experience that until you let the Son of God possess your entire heart, you will never be content. So what's keeping you from being content? What is it that you think you lack here tonight? Maybe for some of our college-age students, a wife or a husband. Maybe for some of other of you, it's a certain house in a certain area of town, a slimmer figure, a certain figure on your paycheck, designer clothes, the newest technology, that plasma screen TV. Or maybe you're that one who's just like, I just need money, just general money. You have to have the best things. You don't need it. Money makes a horrible God. God will always provide for you. Don't stress out. Or maybe you're like I used to be. And you think, you know, I just won't be happy until I leave Albuquerque. Right? Well, that was only because I had this idea of where I thought I needed to be happy. And Jesus showed me that if he is my source of contentment, well, then I should be fine anywhere because he's everywhere. Whatever it is you think you need, what we need is Jesus. I know it's hard. I don't think that Paul is saying that it's easy. He's saying that it's possible if we were willing to humble ourselves and rely on Christ. That in Christ it's possible to shed these ideas of what we think we must have in our lives. And I'm not going to lie, last night as I studied for this message, I asked myself, What are the must-haves in your life? And to be honest with you, I started to think about all the areas of town that I never wanted to live in. All the cars that I don't want to drive and all the jobs that I don't want to have. And then I prayed that God would rid me of that selfishness. I know that we all have a list of what we think we need to have to survive. We don't need it. As Christians, we should have one list and one name on the top of that list, and it is Jesus. He knows everything you could ever need. And if there's something that you don't have, there's a reason you don't. And by His power, you can live without it. So my prayer for you tonight is that you'd be truly content. That in fact, you'd be happier than a clam. That it wouldn't be this 50% of the time I'm great and 50% of the time I'm miserable. Someone once said, happiness 
is like a butterfly. The more you chase it, the more it eludes you. But if you turn your attention to other things, it comes and sits softly on your shoulders. I like that. And I think for the believer, that's so true. That if we would just take our eyes off of our own desires and we would put them on the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that as we're focused on Him, He will take happiness, joy, and contentment and place it upon our shoulders. It's almost 2011, so maybe some of you are going to make a New Year's resolution. I pray that your resolution would be to focus more on Jesus this year, to rely more on Jesus to make him more your center of contentedness and that you would remember that no matter what happens and whatever 2011 brings your way, that God hasn't changed. His character hasn't changed. He's still the same person he's always been. He's still the God that we can rely on every single day. And so I just want to leave you with the words of this wonderful song from Fernando Ortega that I think sums it up. And as I was writing this message, this, these words just kept coming into my heart and so I just wanted to share them as a final note as we sum this up. In the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus. When I'm alone, give me Jesus. When I come to die, give me Jesus. Oh, you can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.